Today marks the two-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine, a grim milestone that few, and certainly not Vladimir Putin, thought we would ever reach. On February the 27th, uh, 24th, 2022, the world looked on as the Russian invasion began. Good morning from the Ukrainian capital, Kiev. Gunfire and explosions have been heard here and in the second city of Kharkiv shortly after the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, authorised a special military operation. Ukraine's, Ukraine's towns and cities were subjected to relentless shelling, prompting a mass exodus into neighbouring countries. Since then, almost 6 million people have fled their homeland, estimates of 22,000 civilian casualties and hundreds of thousands of Russian and Ukrainian soldiers killed, seriously wounded or missing. And there's no real end in sight. I'm joined by Gulnaz Sharafudnova, Professor of Russian Politics and Director of the Russia Institute at King's College in London. She's also the author of The Red Mirror, which is a study of Putin's leadership. And also Dr Brian Whitmore, Russia and Eurasia Specialist at the Atlantic Council and producer of the popular Russian politics podcast, The Power Vertical. Gulnaz and Brian, welcome to Saturday Extra. Thanks for having me. Hello there. Good morning to you. Uh, Gulnaz, will this anniversary be marked in any official way in Russia? Do you expect a speech or a statement from Vladimir Putin or one of his generals? Um, maybe not tomorrow, but on the 29th of February, uh, there is an annual address uh, to the Federal Assembly that has been planned already. So that would probably be something that's marking both uh, the the two years, but also the new term that's coming up. And and what I see from uh, predictions is that Putin will be talking about his plans for the next six years. For the next six years, is there is there any way do you think that Putin was expecting his soldiers to still be on the front line now, two years later? You mean at, from the beginning when it yes, started? Yes, when he first ordered the invasion. I'm sure they have thought of various scenarios, but I think the early thought was that things will uh, work for Russia quicker. And it's just, you know, otherwise, uh, you know, uh, the war probably will not have started in, in the first place. But that's what happens with all the wars where leaders overestimate their um, their resources and underestimate the costs. Yeah, I'm sure you're right about that. Brian, what about Ukraine's expectations? It's the David in this David and Goliath story. But a year ago, President Volodymyr Zelensky promised Ukrainians they'd win this war and win it this year. That obviously hasn't happened. Yeah, the, the the perceptions in this war, as well as the war itself, has kind of had a seesaw quality, right? When Russia when Russia invaded on February twenty fourth, twenty twenty two, most people were expecting this to be over in a matter of weeks. Uh, thankfully, we were all wrong. Uh, Ukraine managed to push Russian forces away from Kiev, fight them to a deadlock in the east. A year ago, you're right. Um, we after after Ukrainian victories in Kharkiv and in Kherson, there was a lot of expectations that Ukraine was going to be able to liberate all of its territory back to 1991 borders. That hasn't happened. And now we're back to the doom and gloom. And I think the problem with this conflict in terms of the perceptions of it is that we've all had a problem kind of right-sizing where things are. Mm. Um, right now, Ukraine is showing a, they're, they're, they're not moving on the, on the front in the east. In fact, Russia has the initiative in the east at the moment. But Ukraine's showing a remarkable ability to hit Russian naval assets in the Black Sea. By estimates I've seen, they've knocked out about one-third of the Russian Black Sea fleet, which is pretty remarkable for a country that doesn't have a navy. 
when you really think about that. Um, they've also shown an ability to hit Russian assets in um, in, in Crimea. Um, what I'm expecting this year is for is for Ukraine to retrench and just try to hold on to it, to its territory and gear up for another counteroffensive next year. So if 2022 was the year of Russia advancing, 2023 was the year of Ukraine advancing, this is the year Russia's going to try to advance, Ukraine's going to defend, hopefully replenish its forces with the assistance of the West, which is the key variable in this right now, um, and hopefully they'll be ready for a counteroffensive next year. Well, well, let's talk a bit more about that, because just this week, the Russians retook the town of Avdivika after the new head of Ukraine's armed forces, General Alexander Siski, was forced to order a retreat. Putin called it an important victory. Zelensky blamed the forced withdrawal on, quote, faltering Western weapons supplies. Is that fair enough, that equation? And, and is the West getting fatigued with supporting this war? And what does that mean? Well, I'll come to that in a moment. But the fact that Russia is celebrating taking Avdivka um, two years into the war is pretty telling. <laughs> and they thought they were going to take Kiev in the first weeks of the war. So I think I let, let's keep all of this in perspective. The two big cities that are they're the two major things that Russia, Russia has taken recently, Avdivka and Bakhmut, neither are terribly strategically significant. But you're absolutely right. And I think President Zelensky, I hate to hear this as an American, but he's right. Um, and that, 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 that this is the result of, of faltering Western, Western weapons supplies. Um, Ukraine's got the resolve to fight and they got the capability to fight, um, but they need our support. And right now, the, the U.S. supplemental defense aid package to Ukraine is tied up in the dysfunctional United States House of Representatives. Um, and, and until we get that passed, it's going to be tough. Ukraine's running out of artillery right now. They're ready to fight, but they need they, they need the arms to do so. The Europeans are doing their part. The Europeans have actually given more to Ukraine than the United States. Americans need to hear that because it's true, um, the, the, which kind of cuts against the perceptions. We Americans need to do our part now. Um, and provide the Ukrainians with the weapons they need, because this is a bargain in my book. Ukraine's destroyed one-third of the Russian Black Sea fleet uh, for, for, for pennies on the dollar. Mm. If you think about what we're, what we're, we're, we're – not a single American boot is on the ground. We're spending approximately 4 percent of the U.S. defense budget on Ukraine. That's a pretty damn big bargain in my book in terms of the ability to take out the military of one of our main geopolitical adversaries. Well, bargain or not, they are going around with cap in hand again. I mean we've just seen the Australian ambassador to Australia this week uh, asking our government for further military support. Support, including more armoured personnel characters and anti-drone and anti-mine clearing equipment. Gulnaz, in the past weeks, um, I think Vladimir Putin, it's fair to say, has been looking pretty upbeat publicly. Is he confident the West is fatigued with this war? He has been showing a lot of confidence, yes, absolutely. And uh, there is also, of course, pre-electoral sort of uh, scenarios uh, of him flying planes and and announcing that the next century will be Russian century and things like that. Mm. So so there is a lot of uh, shown confidence indeed. Um, and, and what is that about? I mean, how much is he enjoying, for instance, that $60 billion of US military aid being held up in that p- political row in, in Washington? He's been in power for a while, so he knows that uh, politics do not work in autocratic ways in, in the West. And, and so he's sort of enjoying it, I guess, uh, sort of thinking to himself that yeah, exactly that's I, I knew that if I wait long enough that, you know, um, the West will not keep uh, together and, and there will be conflicts and problems. And his commitment is not matched by the commitment in the West. Um 
talking, uh, staying with Putin for a while, rations go to the polls in, in less than a month. Do you think Vladimir Putin's going to pay any domestic price for having started this war and, and not having won it yet? The war context by itself uh, is designed so that uh, it works to consolidate society, even if people might not support the war, but they won't show it and they will declaratively support the war. So the whole system, the, the autocratic system, the way it operates is that it pushes the costs onto the public. So in the end, the domestic price will be based not, not by the elites and not by Putin himself, but by the people in terms of the prices and what's available to them and their travel opportunities and their just psychological well-being. And how much of a price are they paying yet? I was, I was hearing this morning a report suggesting that despite all the sanctions that have been piled on Russia, the supermarket shelves are still stocked, you know, life's going on. Yes, and that's what the Kremlin is betting on, that by maintaining uh, stability, by maintaining the look of economic well-being, by really demonstrating and propagating about how Russian economy is doing really well, uh, they're trying to keep everyone stable and pacified. And the war economy does include a lot of money going into the economy, into the military production. And so it keeps uh, people afloat. And for some, it even raises the salaries. And of course, the contract uh, soldiers, they get a lot of money paid. So it sort of um, does bring some resources to those who were uh, disadvantaged before. And hence, people are not necessarily feeling everything. And only those whose you know children or husbands are on the front. And you see some mothers and, and sisters and uh, they are mobilizing to bring their soldiers back. Yeah. You see those cases too. I mean, looking on from this distance, mm -hmm. I saw some recent polling, I think it was Levada polling that showed Putin has an 85% approval rating right now. You know, this, this despite 200,000 young Russian men being killed or seriously injured in this war, thousands of anti-war protesters being detained, thousands, many thousands skipping the country to avoid the draft, <laughs> billions being spent on weapons. Why? Why is not that support waning? Um, yes, so a lot of people are trying to understand, right, what's behind these numbers. And uh, as I mentioned, these are, first of all, declarative numbers that do not really dig deep inside of what's happening with people's attitudes. Mm -hmm. And when you look closer into big um, uh, groups in, uh, in of those uh, polled who are not answering the question with yes or no, who are saying that I don't know or I don't want to respond, you see the growth in those uh, numbers from like 20% to 36 38 so, in fact, many people are growing more ambiguous and fatigued about the war. And that is not shown in those groups that support or do not support the war, but it is shown in those more ambiguous groups that do not want to respond. So you see some shifts in the opinion polls as well, if you look closely at specific groups and specific responses. But it is declarative support is expected. That's the norm. That's the dominant strategy that the Kremlin is pushing on to people, that you're a traitor if you don't declare support. Mm. And do you think it'll show up in the polling on election day? Uh, on election day, what will show up in the polling will be determined by the administrative uh, state officials who <laughs> will be um, accounting and, and declaring the results. Brian, a week ago, with this election looming, a popular opposition figure, Alexei Navalny, died in a Russian prison. Western leaders have blamed Putin for his death. Navalny's wife, Yulia, accuses him directly of ordering his death. 
If we accept that's true, what does it say about Vladimir Putin's concerns about his own global standing? Well, yeah, yeah, and I don't have any doubt in my mind that Putin killed Navalny, right? And I think we have to, we have to, we, we, Navalny didn't die, Putin killed him. Um, I think Putin long ago stopped being concerned about his global standing, or at least in the West. What this tells me is more about how Putin views his own society. There was a time, not that long ago, when Vladimir Putin was afraid to even imprison Navalny, let alone kill him. Um, back in the summer of 2013, for example, the first time Navalny was put in prison in July of 2013, there were massive protests, mostly young people in the streets of Moscow. Kids were climbing up the, the, the facade of the parliament. It was really a sight to behold. Um, and the, the, the regime got spooked. And they let Navalny out of prison after one day. He returned to the, the Yaroslav railway station in Moscow. Uh, incidentally, the same railway station that Andrei Sakharov returned from eternal exile uh, from in, in 1986 to a raucous hero's welcome. Right. So this told me that they were at that time, they there was still a little bit of fear for the support that this man had among the public, particularly among young people. Now they do not have that fear anymore. And that 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 is a very frightening prospect. The other side of this is that Navalny had support on the inside. He was doing these really groundbreaking anti-corruption investigations. Any good journalist knows to do an anti-corruption investigation, you gotta have sources. Uh, Navalny clearly did, which always suggested to me that he had support among some elements on the inside. Putin's trying to shut that off now. So the 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 fact that they were willing to eliminate Navalny tells me Putin no longer fears his public and he no longer fears or he wants to shut off that safety valve within the elite. Yeah, Kulnaz, how do you see that? I mean, there is huge popular support inside Russia for Navalny that's been on show in the past, as Brian just said. It's a very public show of contempt for their views by Putin. Why would he do this? Gulnas? Uh, Navalny, yes, yes. Uh, I missed some of uh, some of parts of your question, but uh, if I understand correctly, you asked about why uh, Putin uh, killed Navalny, and uh, while many people support Navalny. Yes, yes. Um, well, support for Navalny was concentrated in uh, among the youth, among the big city, uh, younger population. And so you we need to realize that um, uh, the the knowledge and support for him was uh, actually fragmented in, in the smaller cities and, and many people wouldn't um, really care or wouldn't know. And a big chunk of Russian population is very, very depoliticized. But for Putin, for the Kremlin, Navalny, with his creative learning, sort of uh, new generation politician approach, uh, he was threatening because because he was taking, you know, people into the future in terms of how he was doing it and what he and exposing corruption and and calling for protests and gaining increasing support over the years. But of, he was locked uh, away. But he was locked away in a prison in the Arctic. Uh, yes, uh, and then there is a revenge, right? So uh, there is just simple revenge uh, uh, logic that that works as well. Because it, you know we we have witnessed uh, Navalny's behavior uh, when he was locked uh, in, including the very recent video a day or two before a day before he was uh, murdered, mm. and with all the torture that he uh, was uh, taken through, he was the spirits of. Of, of him were so high that he was trying to stand up to the system even from after years of torture. Okay. And as if he was saying that, you know, he doesn't care. It's just he showed such spirits and he was fighting the system. And 
and and the system is taking revenge. Gunlas, Brian, thank you very much for joining us today on Saturday Extra. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Professor Gunlar Sharafatanova from the King's College in London and Brian Whitmore from the Atlantic Council. You're listening to Saturday Extra. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.